0: Hello, my name is Saya. Welcome to my brand new podcast, Hearsay. For this podcast, I'm interviewing musicians and other creative types about their artistic endeavours, so what they do and how they got to where they are. I'm also asking people what the weirdest thing is that's happened to them as part of their creative endeavour, so this might be their worst or most memorably strange show or just the most bizarre thing that's happened to them because they do what they do. Then I'm going to get someone to illustrate that story and the pic will be posted to my Hearsay Facebook and Instagram pages. My first guest is my dear friend Kwan Yeomans. Kwan has been part of the band Regurgitator for over 20 years. He's done some solo stuff. He's released a fantastic hip-hop EP with Spod under the name Blocks, which I'm a massive fan of. Uh, And I've been on tour with Kwan a lot as part of Regurgitator. Kwan's story is illustrated by the incredible Scott Edgar. You might know Scott as Scott from the comedy music group Tripod. This drawing is just hilarious and I'm so grateful Scott had the time to do it because I'm a massive fan of his illustrations too. Uh, bear with me through these first few podcasts as this is really new to me, but I really hope you enjoy it. So here we go, Quan Yeoman's hearsay podcast number one. <laughs> Kwan, hello, Saya. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> this is going well.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad um, we got that awkward introduction out of the way. Now we where can. Are you? S- I'm in, uh, I'm sitting on the floor in a hotel room in Canberra. Nice. Um, waiting for the impending doom of the evening,
0: <laughs> which is a regurgitator concert.
1: That's right. In Canberra. Uh, is it at the uni? Yes, one of them. I don't know. All, they all seem the same to me.
0: <laughs> Did you find it okay this time? I know there's a classic regurgitator circle technique where you just circle the entire grounds until you find where you're going.
1: It's the spiral technique you're referring to. and, and that, Sorry, spiral that technique. That died in the arse since Google Maps, realistically.
0: Oh, yeah. So
1: it's, it's pretty disappointing for Paul that we don't get anywhere near as lost as we used to. But
0: oh, well, that's good technology.
1: news. Technology, marching forward. <laughs> Driving down in the van towards Canberra, we discovered that... Um, Well, Pete started talking about the new uh, Sting pop album, pop rock album. Oh, yeah. And how shocking it was.
0: Shocking bad or shocking good?
1: Well, in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) And then we got onto the new uh, Chili Peppers record. And then we've decided to learn some of the old Chili Peppers riffs. Yeah,
0: right. You know, I think that the first time I ever saw Regurgitator play was at a Chili Peppers concert at the Entertainment Centre in Brisbane. Yep. And I was probably in grade eight or something, um, and it was was a really weird experience. <laughs> what, what was weird about it? I think it was one of the first times I ever smoked pot, and I I thought that when regurgitator co- came on, you were the chili peppers. Oh wow! And I I was really confused for a long time because I think you were wearing a wig. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I was wearing a um a blonde curly wig and a I think it was a th- a thermal sweater. That ha- was like a skivvy, oh, no. a skivvy thermal squ- sweater. So unglamorous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do, you, do you feel like you still make an effort to dress up as much as you used to? Because I remember like seeing you play and you were, you know, wearing a dress and obviously the skivvy thing was a thing.
1: Uh, yeah, you know, I'm less inclined to, to enjoy doing that unless it's really well thought out, which it never is. We never have time to. So, you know, Ben is our costume guy. Yep. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> invariably we get to the point where it's too late and then we throw something together yeah and it's i don't know it looks good from a distance maybe but if you're on stage looking at each other and this stuff you realize that it's just cheap and nasty <laughs> what do what <laughs> you, you know,
0: what's your current costume
1: oh uh, it's like these ten dollar suits we got off the internet <laughs> like the ti- tiger suits or whatever oh that sounds pretty but, you know good. It, i mean the good thing about getting into costumes is it does make you feel like you're going to work you know which is good it's a good thing
0: yeah you get into your stage persona or whatever
1: Yeah, that's right. Which is basically our normal personas when we're off stage, except (laughs) a little louder.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Do you remember? I remember when when we were touring together, there was talk of all getting just a really dark orange spray tan as our costume.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I would have loved to have done that. But that was one of my ideas, so it always gets on the back burner.
0: I feel like that (laughs) would have been really bad for Pete and I and like kind of okay (laughs) for you and Ben.
1: (laughs) I don't know, man.
0: So, I kind of wanted to ask you, and uh, uh, thanks for being my guinea pig, by the way. That's okay. Um, so, I kind of wanted to talk to you about your life leading up to where you are now, um, your music and your aspirations and stuff. So, okay. let's start with, so you did you grow up in Brisbane or you, you grew up in Sydney a little bit, didn't you?
1: Yeah, just a warning though. I mean, I have a lot of holes in my memory, as you're well aware of. Yeah. So, there's probably going to be vast amounts of, of time just that are not there in That's the vaults. Fine. That's absolutely
0: <laughs> fine. I just want to hear what you do remember.
1: Yeah, okay. So, I was born in Sydney in Paddington in the Women's Hospital and I lived there for the first three or four years of my life. Then I think they moved, moved to uh, Cairns, my parents, uh-huh. um, and, oh no, sorry, Mackay. So, really, north of Queensland.
0: And were they moving for work?
1: Yeah, my dad was kind of nomadic when it came to work because he worked from home and he was a psychiatrist and my mother basically just followed him around for a little while until she got sick of it, Yeah, um, which is around when we moved to Cairns, I was eight and then my parents kind of divorced and I went to Townsville with my father for a little while and then Sydney with him and my mother moved to Brisbane at that point point. Mm-hmm. and then after, after a couple more years in Sydney, I went back to Brisbane because I was just playing truant and uh, I went to a pretty bad school in Glebe, which um, I got bullied at a little bit. And uh, so that was pretty formative, I think, in terms of becoming more um, introspective and and kind of developing a a, a will to, to be motivated to pull myself up and to kind of do something a little bit more exciting than just go down the, the beaten path.
0: Yeah, right. That's really interesting because I think that can go the other way for a lot of people. Make you know, make make you not want to do anything because you just want to hide.
1: Yeah, sure, but I think you find with most most entertainers, they have that kind of background. They have this kind of like, a beaten down at school. They weren't necessarily the popular kids. It's pretty rare, unless you know, unless you're Powderfinger. Yeah, like a okay, <laughs> kind of. I'm sure they privileged. had some pain too. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they did, yeah. and I mean, it it is it it is an outlet to kind of create creativity is an outlet for that sort of stuff all the time. I think. Yeah. And so, that was definitely important for me to go through that, even though it wasn't enjoyable at the time.
0: So, how old were you then?
1: Uh, I must have been about 11 or 12, going to Sydney, 13. I think I made it to 14 and then moved to Brisbane. Okay. And then the rest of my time, um, up until the, the point where the band was taking off, was, was spent in Brisbane. So, from 14 to 21 or something.
0: Okay. And then as soon as you got to Brisbane, you started making some music, is that right?
1: Uh, my mother bought me like a, I think I had a, there was an acoustic guitar there or something and there was a piano in the house Yeah. and um, she had forced me to play a piano when I was much younger in Cairns and I would hated it every time. I didn't like going to the music lessons and I didn't like to be taught. So I think I just picked up that acoustic guitar that was lying around the house and just started playing uh, and teaching myself, like listening to Uh, Hendrix and and Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. And then I I think she bought me an electric guitar. My first electric guitar was a Gibson S1. So, I mean, I got lucky. It was a a reasonably good guitar. Uh, It was well set up and it played well. So I I was lucky enough to, fortunate enough to learn on a decent guitar.
0: Yeah. And did you have lessons?
1: I think I had one or two jazz lessons much further down the track because I was like, I can play this, but there must be more. And then I kind of go to these lessons and go, I don't want to. (laughs) <laughs> Don't really want to end up like this blues jazz player sitting here teaching me. I d- it just wasn't for me. So you just want just... to learn
0: Jimi Hendrix and Stairway to Heaven.
1: Yeah, you know, playing <laughs> playing songs that I liked. Yeah, um, was more important.
0: Yeah, and it, but did you learn the drums first?
1: I uh, I got a drum kit somewhat after a little bit after that, like a really shitty Maxwin kit that was like gold and, and sparkly and i kind of adjuncted to the toms with bongos and stuff so i ended up with like a, t- a 20 piece kit or something ridiculous <laughs> and um yeah Amazing. i just play i play that just for fun and got you know okay at it and then um i started playing drums a little bit in my first kind of punk band so first the first band i joined in brisbane was a blues band really it was kind of 12 bar bernie and the kick-ass blues band
0: <laughs> the stuff you're fighting against <laughs> oh
1: no i was actually auditioning to play bass for that and it was really really just dumb blues like i couldn't i mean i you couldn't really do it badly but you could i couldn't really do it well either um and that was pretty funny just kind of getting used to auditioning for bands and getting yeah. into that kind of weird realm
0: what um what kind of dudes were they
1: Oh, they were kind of. The guy was like a middle-aged blues do- dude that had never really done anything. I don't think. I actually don't know much about him. Um, I just know that he smoked joints like an absolute loser. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was just something really, really uncool about the guy, and the band was just like they had. No one had any respect for him at all. Aww. And uh, we just played a couple. I think I played one show in like a really shitty pub somewhere in the like, suburbs, maybe or two, and then I, I. Uh, Started playing with school friends and um, that was Matt uh, from the Larder in um, Uh Larder Fame in in Brisbane. And we'd gone to school together and he played bass and he got me into the Ramones and got me into um, Primus and uh, uh, Fear and stuff like that. And then I met Derek and Vic and we started Zurastia and we just rehearsed in in Fish Lane in in West End.
0: And were you playing drums in... Band?
1: No 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 I started playing, playing guitar, guitar in that. Band. Okay. Yeah. And at at that stage I could play guitar like reasonably well. Like fusion kind of rock stuff, so it was quite complex and and um and it was all about playing fast and and uh technically difficult stuff. My rhythm was really good. It was always really good and because I played drums at the same time yeah, as, yeah. as learning to play, I think as a rhythm guitarist I was fairly fairly um on it. And I was in, interested in weird time signatures and stuff through Primus and all that sort of stuff, so
0: and so was that band really um, like heaps of crazy time signatures?
1: Yep, yeah, yeah, really fucked up stuff and really weird sonically, lots yeah, of right. slap slap bass fusion kind <laughs> of stuff, and and Vic just screaming her guts out of the top. I mean, Great. pretty incendiary. And and um, Derek was a uh, a kind of just a part time drummer who was really obsessed with weird time signatures and odd African rhythms and stuff like nice. that. So it was a really weird mixture of things that kind of just clamoured together.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. I never, I never heard that band, but yeah, you know, I hear you talking about it every now and again.
1: There was only one tape that was ever done, so I started doing an SAE course at the same time that that band was going because I, I kind of dropped out of art school. Um, I, I finished my t- year twelve no problem, but you know my academic. Status was not, but it was very average at that point. Was
0: that just because you were like more interested in playing music than you were studying art?
1: I think it was just a lack of interest in anything, really. I knew that I liked playing music, but I didn't think I could actually do anything with it. I just was like, "Well, this is something to occupy occupy my time," and it was an interesting world that I didn't know much about. Yeah, and um, it was it was a schedule that I could stick to, practice times, and you know, learning to play better and learning new music and meeting different people. So that was a nice little outlet to feel like I was doing something or accomplishing something when I probably wasn't going to do anything with it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it was better than going to business, you know, communication school or going, even our college was very uninspiring at the time.
0: Yeah, right. Were you doing fine arts?
1: Yeah, fine arts at the um, College of Art before it was part of Griffith Uni, I think, and it, I think it changed over at the same time that I was doing it. Oh, okay. So it was very messy. It was not a very good, well... Well structured um, place at the time,
0: and then and so during this time you were living with your mum still.
1: Yeah, still downstairs with my mum until I was about twenty two or twenty three.
0: So after Zoroastia, you did you play in any other bands, or was that sort of when you met Ben?
1: No, well um, I think uh, for for a while there I started playing drums for Zuarastia because Derek kind of pulled out. I can't remember exactly why, but he stopped playing with us for a little while. And I, I thought oh, I'll, I'll just play drums for a little while, and I think, um, uh, Paulie, Paulie from the Beautiful Girls, the the bass yeah. player, he 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 took over the guitar playing for for a bit, and then after playing a couple of shows with them and and kind of semi enjoying it, I decided to join this other kind of band who was just like a, they were just nice nerds that I kind of had more in common with than than the other people I'd played with before because I mean Zoroastia were really interesting characters but they were pretty they were very punk and very into drugs and uh, it was just not really I loved working with them but actually hanging out with them I felt really uncool and really out of place so I I joined this other band called Snowplow which were a terrible terrible band musically but I played drums for them. What kind of vibe was it? It was kind of really really kind of beige indie music (laughs) I didn't even know. I can't. I can't even remember. Yeah, I mean, really, not what I was into at all, and never really into. But I mean, it was still me enjoying the just a dynamic of playing in bands, and I didn't really care or know which direction to go in. um, Really, so I played with them uh, for a little bit. I actually think we played the same gig that Regurgitators was the first gig as well. I think they may have had a had a set at that Market Day. I can't remember though. Um, Memory is not not your forte. (laughs) <laughs> no, it isn't. It isn't. I um, love it. <laughs> I'm more of an in the moment kind of guy. <laughs> but uh, um,
0: well, let's try and try and go back to um to those the early nineties.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a long time ago.
0: I know. I was just saying to someone the other day. I still think that two th- that year 2000 was very recently. Like, I can't fathom that, that you can't was comprehend 16th, 16 yeah.
1: years ago i know we played the metro last night and we hadn't played there since 2007 and it just felt like yesterday being down yeah. in the back room and yeah so i weird. was there
0: it was bizarre Time is so weird that is yeah that's crazy that that was so long ago mm. um and that yeah anyway let's uh let's talk about that later so you haven't you haven't started regurgitator yet but you're thinking you're playing in a band you're not really too keen on the people in the band you joined this new band, um and you're playing Market Day? And then what happens?
1: I think actually, um I can't remember whether it was the same market day that Ragoda Taylor played. So at at the same time that I was playing drums in that band, I think I had met Ben Eli and and he had introduced me to Martin and then we'd started jamming as well. Okay. And I know there was a lot of like uh, a little bit like, oh, what are you doing? Are you playing in another band from that other snowplow band? A little bit, oh, okay. and they were like, yeah. oh. And I, I really knew that that I wasn't going to do anything with this other band, and the other yeah. Regurgitator was far more interesting and far more in line with my kind of weird interests in music. Yeah. So it quickly took over, and I think there was maybe a very small overlap when I was playing in both bands, but yeah, Regurgitator quickly took over.
0: And what was it about Ben and Martin that got you excited?
1: Well, initially I was really interested in Martin because he was a half-Asian guy like me. And Ben I'd kind of admired because he was in a a fairly popular Brisbane band, Pangaea, at the time. So he was kind of like... He was a bit of a kind of like a figure that was um, more experienced and very confident and very good-looking and kind of...
0: Great musician.
1: Yeah, really good musician, covered in tattoos. was very. Both of them were very kind of... um, rock star kind of archetypes. And um even though I I felt a little bit less comfortable with them because the the other band was you know super nerdy and I really like that about them as people. I felt like I felt like there was an energy with with uh, Martin and Ben that I, I I was drawn to on a really kind of base level in terms of of what we could create together and the sound and and the um the energy was there and the look was there as well. So Yeah, yeah. I kind of got caught up in that pretty quickly, I think.
0: And then so you started writing like sort of um I don't know, those the first two EPs were were pretty amazing. I I remember hearing them when I was in high school and just thinking they were incredibly groundbreaking. What um would so they they were kind of like more like f- sort of fast, sort of punky or hardcore initially, weren't they?
1: well no there was some very odd tunes on there as well and the aesthetic was very very raw because i mean we didn't really know what we were doing and we didn't know what genre we would fit into at that point we just wanted to do something a little bit more groove and slow and less technical than the bands we'd played in before and so there was a there was a movement to simplify and to be more primitive about the way we approached music and making making sounds and grooves and you know, Martin was a very good groove drummer and Ben kind of uh, was used to playing like crazy technical stuff in, in Pangaea and I was used to playing that on guitar as well in with Zurastia. So we kind of decided to simplify a lot more and focus on just pure groove. So there was there was a couple of hardcore songs um, mainly because of Ben's... Um, background and influence with bad brains and martin played in hardcore bands since he was like 10 or something ridiculous yeah so they had a lot of skills in that regard but they also because martin was interested in groove drumming and i was interested in groove through my kind of uh interest in hip-hop ben and i started listening to a lot of beastie boys and cypress hill and stuff like that so those influences really started to come into the band quickly yeah right so there on the first couple of EPs there were really strange, dark kind of groove stuff like like it like that and like a seven foot ten and stuff like that and they they just didn't sound like anything we'd heard before around it. You have to you have to understand that it was it was incendiary at the time because it was so conservative. Like we, we were in the same batch of bands uh that were coming out that were just ridiculously boring, like, you know, super, super dull, conservative early nineties kind of stuff. Pap. That was just yeah the, the the whole scene was saturated with at the time you know, so we really were a great alternative to that I think for a lot yeah. of people and oh, for sure, that's part yeah. of part of the reason why timing is so important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then, so speaking of timing, um, is the, so the the story that I've heard is that there was a regurgitated demo and a Pangaea demo on the same tape, which got sent to a record label, and that's the way that you got signed. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean Benjamin also had he had connections to an A&R guy called Michael Parisi who worked for Warner Australia at the time, Warner Music Australia, and Parisi was very interested in Pangaea because they were you know getting a bit of traction in Brisbane and and maybe down south a little bit as well, and then uh, the story is that Ben gave him. One of our tapes, which I had done with those guys at the SAE, that was pretty much the only thing I got out of the course. I don't remember anything (laughs) else about it. (laughs) And it's funny because it was in that transition period between tape and computers where computers were just like, you know, taking over. Yeah. So I didn't get any of that. I didn't actually get any Pro Tools or any any digital audio workstation information when I did that at all. So it was all on tape. And uh, we did four tracks, I think, which I still have. I think I have somewhere and they sound bizarre um i'd love to hear that parisi heard it and was just like you know what i think these guys have more potential and um it wasn't long after that that he kind of started just coming to shows and and uh courting us and i think you know that that caused a lot of tension with with ben's band obviously yeah and and ben was forced to make a choice at some point um not long after
0: that sounds hard for him
1: yeah i'm sure it was
0: yeah good for you though <laughs> <laughs> worked out well yeah i mean
1: incredibly <laughs> fortuitous and it is it really is about timing for the aesthetic of band and also timing for who you meet at what what point it's about those connections
0: and when did paul curtis your manager enter the picture
1: uh paul had been um managing Panga for a while i think at that point those guys had known each other for a little while and they were quite close and yeah um, Paul's you know, he was super eclectic. I mean he's an eclectic guy now, but he was super eclectic back then.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine him being any more eclectic than he is currently. But Yeah, I mean it's it's just <laughs> a long amazing. history
1: of it, you know. You can see I can see like him his whole evolution from when I first met him. You know, it's a kind of a uh um there's like a a distinct line that goes throughout his life of this kind of weird interests and weird kind of habits and I think it's it's just kind of – it's not really mellowing but it's it's kind of adapting to his age as he goes along.
0: You know, I think the industry is changing and that, that means he has to work in different ways and, um, you know, I imagine that would be really difficult for him and especially working with you guys. Like, you just, like, you know, exploded um, in the 90s um, and now it's harder for that to happen now.
1: And it's very, very different now, I think. Well, yeah. looking at some of these – I mean, he mentioned looking at some of these kids' bands um, – contracts that they signed yeah And he's just like oh my god he just cannot believe the kind of things they're expected to put, like give over it's insane i yeah. mean we we're very very lucky Terrifying. when we signed with warner because i think it was all new for them as well i didn't really know uh which way it was going to go and how they could actually spo- exploit us care like to the, the in the most efficient way so uh you know they made mistakes and Obviously, we made mistakes as well as we were going along, but it was kind of—it uh, was a different kind of time back then.
0: Yeah. So, so did you get signed to Warner before the first album, or was it? Were the EPs released through Warner as well?
1: Um, no, everything from the from the get go. We were signed literally six months after our inception.
0: Wow, that's so crazy.
1: We we'd only played like maybe three or four large supports that Paul had lined up for us, and then wow, it, it just kind of went from there.
0: So who were your first supports?
1: The first big ones were um, Primus at the Roxy. Beck and John Spencer Blues Explosion. I think, at Van Gogh's Elo. But I can't remember where the Beck show was. Maybe it was at the Roxy as well. Yeah, I but think those it was. The, yeah. Those are the three that I remember being like, okay, we're in front of a large crowd now and we've got a chance to kind of to um, hurt people. and That's we definitely We definitely made an impact
0: those are um amazing bands to get supports for early on like in the first six months
1: totally totally and i i don't i mean i i guess it was because of the connection between that that um ben had uh cultivated with paul and his kind of his influence as well in the in the scene um so yeah it was very very fortu- fortuitous to have yeah, those that's guys amazing
0: there. So, um, so you've recorded these two EPs that they were both done in Brisbane, is that right?
1: Yeah, at Red Zeds. Uh, actually, yeah, I think they were both done at Red Zeds, and there was like other singles and stuff done at Sunshine, I think. Yeah, but I think that both those EPs were done at Red Zeds.
0: And then you recorded two playing the first album, and you went overseas to do that.
1: Yeah, we went. We went to Thailand to do that, just outside Bangkok.
0: So, you got record label money to go to Bangkok?
1: Yeah, we did. We did. We also had a guerrilla kind of attitude towards it, particularly from Martin's perspective because he was interested in – I mean, he bas- basically, they both had punk rock backgrounds and so did I playing in like Zoroastria and stuff. So, yeah. we were kind of aware that you could get the money and wasted a lot of it just on, on – um, going to expensive studios and getting producers, but we were more interested in going to shitty places um, <laughs> that, were, that were difficult to work in, but, and you know, were kind of held together with toothpicks or whatever, but we had more control, we had more time, we could put money into gear that we didn't have, um, and, and basically total up the, the um, record events that way.
0: That's awesome. I wish that I'd had that attitude more when I was starting out. I think we're, my, my first band, Dan, was all, always so careful, you know, like, better not take too much money because we'll have to pay it back and, you know, I really regret that now.
1: <laughs> but sometimes, I mean, it, it really depends on, on what happens to you as a band as well. I think a lot of bands do take the money and, and then, you know, they have, to, they have to pay it back or they get kicked off because they, stop, they don't sell as much as they're supposed to sell. I mean, we got yeah, pretty yeah. lucky. But the deal we had s- structured as well was pretty good. Like, we're, there was some, some stuff was only half recuperable and some wasn't even recuperable. That was the interesting thing. Like you just don't see that now. It's just no. very. I think, like, the video budgets weren't recuperable at all. So wow, we that's would get amazing. 15 grand or 20 grand and just do whatever we wanted with it, essentially.
0: That's great.
1: Yeah, I mean, it didn't last, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we did get very lucky.
0: So when you were writing for Two Playing, like, did you feel pressure to do, you know, to make a successful record seeing you sort of had this build up and momentum
1: at that point We weren't we weren't actually aware of how successful it would get obviously because you're just doing the first record So there wasn't a lot of pressure We knew that we'd done well in the live kind of scene and we'd got this money to do a first record and that was really exciting And I think we were just genuinely exciting to excited to work and we worked really hard We worked really really hard in Thailand and it was it was messy over there and and um i guess we didn't really have a lot of time so we were we'd put ourselves in rooms and we'd write the lyrics and we'd work and we'd mix and we'd write and we'd mix and we'd write and we just got the job done and i think we were just really really happy to have the have the opportunity to do it
0: so did you have you had some songs written before you went or did you just sort of go with a clean slate and write while you were there
1: there was a couple of songs that appeared on both uh the f- second ep or maybe the first yeah. as well yeah like there was there was um couldn't do it and um, blah, blah, boy I think that made a, a reappearance on, this, on the actual album. Di- different versions of them but they, they did reappear. The rest of it was just clean slate as, you know, whatever would come out of our brains at the time.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. And so I from my impression, writing songs with you and writing songs with Ben – um, ben is much more into jamming songs out and trying to write stuff together and you, you're quite sort of isolated in your song process. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, there's, def- there's definitely a difference between our personalities. I, I mean, I'm much more introverted and he's much more extroverted a person. He likes to be surrounded by people. He likes to integrate with people and, and I'm very much a th- like a closed kind of thinker kind of person who likes to... And the other thing that's different is that um, certainly back then, he was more about writing loads and loads of songs. So he would, he would have, you know, 40, 50 ideas, whereas I would, wow. I would ha- str- like, be strict about having seven, six or seven songs that were enough for the album, deciding on, you know, I may, maybe I'd lose one or two or something like that, and then I'd just hone and hone and hone and make it work, you know. Whereas he was much more kind of like, have as many as I can and then pick and choose and try and find the, the, the gems in there. So that was a different approach for him as well.
0: So it's always been like that between you two? It's always been a similar thing? Or They're the sort of main
1: differences in our in our writing styles.
0: Okay, so you go over there, you've got a few songs and you write a bunch of songs in Bangkok. Then, then what happens?
1: Um, then I think we just tour. I think we just tour. I can't even remember what the initial reaction was from the record company. I think they were a little bit concerned about... Um, couple of song titles
0: i can sort I of imagine know. which ones they might be yeah yeah.
1: <laughs> i mean at that stage we kind of felt fairly empowered because you know when you first signed to a record company you're on top of the world you're like this is going to go great and we're just going to yeah. do what, whatever we want so we were fairly cocky about stuff and yeah and you know paul had to be a, a constant buffer between them because it is a very different kind of approach to the project that a, a major record label has to an artist and well uh,
0: yeah and especially when the artist is writing songs called pop porn and stuff and you know i imagine that might be a tricky thing for them to get their head around if they're expecting a hit
1: there was also a a a kind of element of hypocrisy in in uh, that i felt um in being signed to a, a corporate um giant like warner as well which i you know always sat a little bit odd with me um you know, Martin was a business, a lot more of a business person than us because he'd, he'd grown up in the back of a, a restaurant his um, parents had run. So he was much more cluey about money and he didn't have the kind of, um, how do you say, like, he, he didn't have a stigma. There wasn't a stigma around working with, with um, such a big kind of business in a situation like that. So he was all about the money and and. And Paul was has never been about the money, and that's one no. of the things we really liked about him. So I, there was a lot of clashing going on between those guys, and we have very disparate personalities at the beginning. And when you when you start in a band, as you know, you you've got you want to h- try and find your voice, and you've, you you want to your ego is kind of a little bit bigger because you want to fight for the things that you want on the record, and your songs and your parts and all that sort of stuff. So there was a lot of tension there, which adds to the creativity, I think.
0: But it seems like you were you were sort of on the same page musically.
1: Um, Yes and no I think we we kind of Were quite competitive About things In this You know Not not to the level of Like Lennon and McCartney Or anything But certainly (laughs) We had that kind of Competitiveness Between two major songwriters That really forced us To work harder Against each other More than working towards Each other's Like I don't know how supportive We were Maybe we were supportive Of each other's songs Because we were impressed With each other's work But it was more about One-upmanship At that point I think
0: so that seemed to have continued on to UNIT. Um, yeah, totally. Because I feel like uh, from the stories that I've heard from you guys, it was a real sort of um, like bring your A game. Oh, shit, he's done a really good song. I better write a better song. And then like that yeah. goes on for 10, 10 songs.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, And I think, I mean, that's always been my favorite record because it was super keyboardy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was a very left field record as well because the one before it was so not like it. And uh, that and so was so did you do decision. that on purpose? Yeah. Yeah, I mean we were listening to stuff that no one I mean the 80s had been neglected for some time at that point and it just wasn't really cool to be listening and playing that kind of music yet. Um it, there wasn't a, a long enough time between the 80s and the 90s I don't think for people to kind of forget about it and um embrace it.
0: Did you do it sort of to alienate the rock dudes that were coming to your shows too?
1: Uh, Yes. Two Plang definitely was a heavier record and and these shows would get pretty testosterone fueled, which was fun at first. But then, you know, there was uh, was quite a bit of violence creeping into it and we wanted to kind of soften our, our attitude a little bit, I think, because of that reason. But we were also just, you know, massive fans of 80s music and we just were like, oh, let's just, let's just go with that kind of aesthetic to a certain degree and, and see what happens.
0: Yeah, well, it seemed to work really well. Made a great record.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's still my favourite record as well just because it's so eclectic and so kind of, yeah, because of the competition that was between us, I think we wrote reasonable reasonable songs but i mean aesthetically it is pretty i mean we're recording on adats they sound cold as hell the you know i think if if anything magoo kind of held us together and made it work and made songs better but with the technology we were working with there was no way it's going to make it sound great they're not they're not exactly sonically beautiful
0: you were recording onto onto adats that record
1: digital tape yeah wow none of us. I think I had Pro Tools but a very early early um version of it, which was synced at some points for MIDI and some of the more electronic parts in that record, but that was it.
0: What um what what keyboards were you using?
1: I had a Nord Lead. Yep. I had the Nord Lead, which I liked because of the the color of it.
0: That's a good good enough reason. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. And it had like a one of those wooden um pitch bend sticks. Yes. And it was small as well. I like that about yeah. it. Uh, the sounds were kind of funny and super digital, but I, I quite liked it. Um, and apart from that, I had an S1000 or maybe an S2000 sampler, Akai hardware sampler. And we had a Groovebox, one of those MC303 oh, releases, yeah. of which was basically polyest- the whole of Polyester Girl was just that.
0: And what did you, what did you use the sampler for?
1: Um, just little bits here and there like um, samples in I think (laughs) because we had no idea how else to do it we kind of repitched the Prince vocals because I had a habit of writing songs that were completely out of my key I was a terrible singer back then
0: I do that too
1: (laughs) there was a lot of working working like reworking the vocals and trying to get them to like because we're you know autotune didn't exist and so Stuff like Prince was resampled. Every phrase was resampled and put wow. into the sampler and reprogrammed back into the song. It was like ridiculous work workarounds. And then there was little bits taken out of records and stuff. And um, yeah, I mean it's 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 shit because we didn't get any cl- sample clearance for that song formerly known as so the
0: just the thank you Mister DJ bit yeah that cost yeah. me
1: like sixty six percent of the publishing of that song.
0: Fucking hell.
1: And that probably would have been the most successful tune on that record, pretty much, I think.
0: Yeah, right. Wow, that's um. that sucks. Mm. I don't even know how you get sample clearance. I've never really played around with samples. You, ha-
1: you basically have to talk to your publisher. You have to talk to the publishers who own the, the rights to the record.
0: Yeah, right. Um, was that the last time you used samples?
1: <laughs> uh, pretty much, yeah. We <laughs> loved our lessons.
0: <laughs> it's such a non-part of that song. That's it, such... so unfortunate
1: I know it doesn't actually form any any hook of it at all but I mean we had no idea we were naive the funny thing is the next record which has no samples on it the guy they have specific guys that work in these publishers just looking out for samples and he came back with like this huge list of things we he was sure we'd sampled when oh <laughs> there wasn't goodness. any samples on it at all so that was pretty ironic
0: wow what else did he think you sampled
1: oh I don't know I have no idea I can't remember what he actually said but we just like laughed at them because there was nothing <laughs> on there Wow.
0: <laughs> um, so, basically, UNIT just exploded in Australia. I remember that happening. Mm. Um, I remember moving into our house uh, that my parents built and listening to it while I was unpacking. And I remember really? thinking, this, this is really rude. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was probably about 15 or something. Um <laughs> Little did I know that the slats and butzo would be my favourite <laughs> backing vocal of all time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we're actually playing that one on this tour, actually. It's quite funny.
0: I know. I'm so bummed I'm missing the backing vocal. Yeah, I mean,
1: it's so funny how that, that, that's a similar story I get from most kids who kind of grew up with that record around, you know, 15, 16-year-olds who were, like, growing up with that record. It was something that was a bit of a kind of rude kind of hide from your parents
0: yeah. And, it, you know, it was really, it, it felt cynical, which I think, you know, every kid at that age sort of is at that time too. Like yeah, you're, um, sure, making fun of stuff and it was cool and being mm. rude and, you know, like nobody really knew what I Will Lick Your Asshole was about, but it was cool you to sing. You still don't know. <laughs> no, I don't
1: know. <laughs> oh God, it's so weird, like singing it out and getting people to scream it back at you. Yeah. It's so, it's so abstract.
0: I remember my fav- one of my favourite memories of that song is when I – um before I was playing with you guys, I took my mum to see you um, because, you know, she'd met you a few times as my friend and mm. she was always like, oh, that Quan is such a nice man and and then, <laughs> and then the whole crowd, like hundreds and hundreds of people were were just screaming, I will lick your asshole!" and mum <laughs> leaned over to me and said, "What what's he saying? And I, I had to say <laughs> – He's saying, I will lick your asshole," And she just blushed. She went, oh,
1: my goodness. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but he's such a nice man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I okay. really like that kind of um, that disparate... I mean, the difference between my personality on stage and the stuff that I write um, and my personality off stage. I really like that. I, I like meeting people who are... Who are artists who who do like really extreme sort of shit and meeting and seeing how gent- gentle they might be in real life or whatever? I think I, yeah, I, find I that, love it too. I find that really fascinating.
0: So okay, so Unit explodes in Australia. Yeah, um, you're playing Festival Hall in Brisbane, which I remember going to see there and just going, oh my god, it was amazing. Yeah, and huge, and you're playing huge festivals everywhere.
1: Yeah, the Big Day arts and stuff
0: so then do you get pressure to go overseas
1: um mostly from the band actually and i i was in a long-term kind of stable relationship at the time uh with janet from spider bait and i kind of just didn't want to and you know the introvert in me was like you know i enjoy doing this stuff for a living and i was amazed at how much you know how easy it seemed to be and how easy things seemed to have happened um, success and all that sort of stuff and I kinda just didn't wanna I didn't want to ruin my, my home life over it. So I insisted on not doing any tours that went longer than three weeks and there's wow. no way you can really take on America or Europe for that matter. So we did one European tour and a couple of American tours that were not that long and not that committed. And I I, I don't think I think Ben and Martin were kind of a little bit pissed off with me about that. Um because they had they had bigger sites.
0: Yeah. And those, w- were you supporting bigger bands in the States and Europe?
1: Yeah, we got a couple of kind of tours that, you know, I, I mean, we were always considered our, ourselves as outsiders to scenes. And we never, we're kind of the bands, one of the bands that never kind of had an American band or a European band go, we love you guys. We're taking you, you know, taking you and putting us, putting you under our wing and we'll take you overseas and look after you and, you know, introduce you to our crowd kind of thing. We never had that. So there were a couple of a ba- uh, couple of tours that were kind of put together with bands who just happened to agree because they were on Warner Brothers in the states, and you know there was a deal struck where we got paid no money, but you know got to go on tour with these bands. Yeah, so
0: right. there was
1: never really a community feel for us with other bands because we were so eclectic and so outside. And I think a lot of bands were like a little bit confused about why we were successful, and and uh, the aesthetic was not. We're not a cool act, and we kind of didn't. I don't I don't think many people really other bands really got us at the time. Well, I
0: guess it's also you had a lot of different styles happening um, on the same records is kind of yeah. I guess that could have been a bit confusing.
1: Very confusing for an American market cuz uh, certainly at the time it was very much about how they could pigeonhole you and and market you.
0: But did you feel like when you were in Australia you were nurturing up and coming bands or did you just feel like oh nobody's doing it to us so
1: Oh no! Um, there were certain, you know, not. Let's not get too we, close. I mean, we loved, loved to putting together really weird uh, tours with people who would not normally be put in front of crowds like ours. That's for sure. That was that's always been a hallmark of um, uh, our tour packages. I think finding the oddest kind of bands to play with and just putting them in front of people. Um,
0: and that, but that's all, always been a bit of a Paul Curtis thing, definitely. Hasn't it? Or is that all? all definitely, of
1: you? and and us going, yeah, do it. We love it. You yeah, know. And occasionally we <laughs> yeah. would see bands that we really liked, and you know people that we met along the way, like you and Second, and and just wanted to play with nice people. That's really important as well to us, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because
1: there is a lot of talented people that are just fucking assholes that you don't want to deal with.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: On a on a personal level, and so you kind of learn.
0: Yeah, you don't want to be com- competing with anyone else's. Yeah, though? no. That's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> that sucks as a headliner. It totally does. So then, how did Art come around? Oh,
1: I was a very, very uncomfortable record to record because we kind of were on the treadmill a little bit then. What actually we should have done really was say, no, we're going to take a year off, we've been working too bloody hard and if we do this, we will kill it. But um, I don't think anyone was clear enough about that. Um, And obviously, Paul was under a lot of pressure to please both sides. So, we kind of just compromised by doing a record in a really kind of calm and peaceful place and the band kind of fell apart during that record um
0: oh really what what happened the
1: personalities started to just clash too much and then um i think it was at the the end of that that unit tour um that was the point when martin had the the accident and disappeared while we you know we're waiting on stage to play to like a couple of thousand all ages kids and he just didn't show up at all and we kind of had to pull the drummers out of the crowd and stuff like that and um there wasn't a kind of family feeling amongst the band that there is now after that many after so many years and just having you know a nice kind of even set of personalities uh so so it was a bit of a, a difficult time and then he kind of got rehabilitated to a certain point but wasn't really confident and was paranoid and you know, Paul and him didn't get along and I and him didn't get along. And while we we're recording that in, there was some talk of recording it in his studio and I felt that it wasn't a neutral space and that pissed him off as well. And w- so we went to Watergoes Beach and set up a studio with Magoo. And I think it was one of the most painful records to record, especially for Magoo, because we were, w- oh, we just no. weren't getting along at all. And, um, uh, really, it's it's a weak record because of that reason. Yeah. I think
0: I don't. I've always liked that record, but you know. Well, it's, I guess I mean, it's your personal experience overshadows it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a beautiful place to record, but it was also difficult to work hard there.
0: And it and it had the ironically had happiness the song on it.
1: Yeah, well, that, that isn't is a song about, about it happy. anyway. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, ironically, that is the song that's paid off most of my publishing debt, which was um, yeah, well, quite sizable. Good. Yeah, but great But it was the most palatable, palatable kind of yeah. song on that record. So,
0: yeah. do you think that um, what happened with Martin was that you've always sort of been pretty anti-drugs and, you know, sort of uh, you want to be in control of things and he was just losing control back then?
1: Yeah, just very, very different um, ideas about life and, and uh, different personalities. Ben was kind of stuck in the middle a little bit going each way and Paul was, you know, pretty pretty annoyed with him most of the time just the way he would undermine his kind of leadership role or management role constantly and um you know martin had some great ideas about running the band and 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 uh approaches to money and he just felt like he was just being you know side railed by all of us and you know he also suffered from you know the drummer who doesn't write music as well which is which is a a a difficult thing
0: yeah of course um did he ever did he ever put songs for Yeah,
1: we we kind of insisted that he did at least one song on the, every record. Um but yeah, it's 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 a tricky situation to kind of to broach, I think a lot of the time.
0: Yeah. And so when that album was finished, um that was when you Got the hell out of Australia and moved away for a while.
1: After is that art, right? Um, let me think.
0: I think that's maybe when um, when we started becoming good friends. When you you moved to, you were in London or maybe you went to Sweden first. Is that right? Oh, I
1: did go to to Europe after. I I mean I ended a relationship with with Janet after about six and a half years with her and sold the house and just left. My father died that year. It was it was two thousand. Yeah. So art was out in 98, I think.
0: Okay. So I've skipped forward a little bit.
1: A little bit, yeah. Um, I don't know what we were doing creatively at that point. I think we were all pretty burnt out after the art tour. So we must have toured around most of 98, 99. And then, um, yeah, things started falling apart for me personally. My dad died in 2000 and I think I just was like, fuck this, I'm leaving. And and then just got on, uh, went to Europe and lived in um, Sweden for about six months, went through like west Western Europe. A couple, I bought a car in Switzerland and just bummed out, bummed around for like um, 12 months there and then lived in London for six months after that. Yep. So that was my midlife Midlife crisis.
0: <laughs> I feel like you've had a once few. once every few years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I've had at least twenty, <laughs>
1: and that's why you know in this business, it's. I think it's you're allowed to have a few more.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I'm, I'm planning on having one. You know, in, this year, and it's <laughs> <laughs> why
1: not? Why not? So.
0: Yeah. Then I remember, so you and I started emailing when you were in Europe. Right. And you were you were starting to really get into a lot of like electronic music and hip hop and stuff.
1: Yeah. Edward, Eduardo and Rodriguez was written at my place, but we were playing Diablo 2 most of the time. So, three <laughs> of us were there. <laughs> in London. I was, I was, no, no, no. We were still in Cobble Street in The Gap. Oh, yeah. So, that okay. must have been 99 or maybe even early 2000 something like that maybe maybe the late 99 and so we did a lot of recording and then we mixed in london
0: so martin's out peter's in
1: yeah martin's out peter's in i'm still with janet then we mixed the record and then i think we started touring and that's where i met you yep right and then and then my life fell apart and i had my my midlife crisis, my first midlife crisis. Then
0: that's right, yeah. And
1: then I went as- overseas. So Eduardo was done, and we'd toured a little bit on that already, and that record was kind of like over. And, um, and then, then I thought, fuck this, you know, we're we're getting off the record label. Um,
0: so had you you'd fulfilled your contract?
1: No, no, we'd only done four records. It was for a five five album deal, but the we, we'd had a change of A and R guy, Dan Hennessy, and. We'd had some really bad experiences with him, particularly recording that record. Him, they were getting more um, heavy-handed with us in the studio. They were coming yeah. into the studio and stuff. You know, you, s- you start selling fewer records, and they want to know where their money is. They want to put their word in a bit more. Yeah, yeah. And so at that point, we we're like, "Fuck this!" You know, we've had we've been working too hard. It's not really working out for us anymore. Let's just take a, b- a longer break, a hiatus. So that's when I went overseas for about. Um, 18 months
0: And was that What happened With the label So were you just uh, Able to Split
1: uh, I think we just Got out of it somehow And they had rights To a, a greatest hits record Or something Which they put out Pretty much oh, okay. Straight after that Eduardo thing uh, Kind of Kind of sp- In a spiteful way Possibly to Kind of Undermine the sales Of that record Even though You know We weren't really Expecting to sell Too many anyway
0: So Eduardo Was a bit more Of a hip hop record
1: I guess you could say that. I <laughs> don't really understand what hip-hop is, I think, and I still don't really understand it because I don't come from that culture, but it was certainly influenced by that kind of music.
0: Yeah. I just remember um, Sekiden did one of the supports on that record mm. um, and I hadn't heard the album before we toured and I was like, whoa, that, like suddenly like everything was just, like you guys were both rapping and it was really cool. Um yeah, I didn't. I was. My, I think my little mind was blown. <laughs> I just expected. <laughs> I expected you guys to be playing unit, and you were like just rapping. It was awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were always kind of like, oh, "Fuck, we're done with that record. Let's do something completely different." Fuck it. I mean, we never really went with consistency ever.
0: Yeah, let's alienate all the people that liked keyboards and. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> we always have those people in mind, but I mean, a part of a part of it was just like you know we weren't really focused enough to do carry any one particular genre anyway. You know, we could do average, average kind of versions of each one with kind of funny lyrics or whatever and make it entertaining for ourselves. But we're never interested enough in one genre, master it or kind of at least explore it to the nth degree. So it was always going to be that way for us. And it was, and it still is, you know,
0: do you think you go out of your way to alienate your last audience with every record a little bit?
1: No, I mean, we don't do it consciously. We just do what we want, essentially. Um, and and sometimes it's a terrible failure. And maybe that alienates them more, but, and it alienates ourselves. But we just want to try, and we just, we just keep on doing as much kind of weird stuff as we can, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good attitude.
1: And I mean, it does take a long time to come around full circle, because with success comes this kind of self-consciousness. So you you find that the records you make after the most successful ones and and the dip in success are the most self-conscious and the most kind of like, ugh, what are they really trying to achieve here? And you feel that way as well when you're doing it. And they're much harder than the original kind of um, progressions that came beforehand. I mean, the worst case was the one going to South America and doing that Love and Paranoia. Unfortunately, that was the one you came over and did with us, but (laughs) it was also the most difficult in that sense, I think.
0: Yeah, it was pretty weird. Mm. um but let's go back to um so when you had all of the success with um you know with unit and during art and eduardo even did you feel like what what kind of things did you notice were happening to you did you feel like shit was getting weird
1: um i guess so i mean like i said we were certainly much more self-conscious of it and and um i don't know i just i just think we lost kind of our vision and lost our purpose to a certain degree which is kind of what happens i think and that's why an artist can't keep producing his best work constantly or her best work constantly at a level unless they're really pushing themselves so i i I did feel like that um we weren't producing the best stuff that we could and i kind of accepted the fact that focus was being drawn away from the the band to newer bands and that was just the natural process of it all
0: and then you decided to make an album in the middle of Federation Square
1: (laughs) oh that's right yeah mishmash yeah I mean we were we were kind of like oh let's not just go into another studio and do it like that and you know Paul had had this idea a while ago and I'd seen David Blaine whilst living in London and just sitting in that little glass box uh, above above the Thames and so it all kind of coalesced into that idea and and amazingly, Paul got it together to make it happen.
0: I remember getting—I was in Germany at the time. I couldn't—I um, couldn't come and visit you guys. And it was just before I started playing with you, I think. Um, and I was getting all these really insane emails from you from the bubble, <laughs> where you just <laughs> sounded like you'd completely lost your mind.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was such such a weird kind of environment to be in because yeah, I it, bet. It, a lot of the rules just didn't apply. Yeah. A lot of the normal everyday rules.
0: Did you feel like um, that was – it was good for your process? Like how were you approaching songs in there?
1: Um, A lot of the songs were written, you know, uh, quite a bit beforehand. They weren't produced or or actually recorded but – we certainly had written quite a bit because we knew it was going to be extremely distracting in there and probably not the best place to write. Yeah, and I mean, in some in some ways, it's a bit of a cop out. We probably should have just left it to chance and see what happened. <laughs> but um, once again, it's a part of that self-conscious thing where you've got to kind of you. There's a certain level of kind of preciousness that comes with writing a new album. Yeah. Um. Because of your experience before, so there was that. Uh, but I mean, on every other level, it was so heightened. Like the life experience was so heightened for me that um, it was really good for my ego. I think because it had been beaten down from less successful records previously, and it really didn't matter that the next record was going to be unsuccessful because it was kind of inevitable. But the experience was worth it.
0: Why do you think it was inevitable?
1: I don't know. I just thi- I just figured that um, you get a time. You know, there's a perfect time for your band to sh- to sort of kind of reach that pinnacle and then it is kind of a matter of just easing off and you kind of just have to accept it in some ways
0: yeah um
1: you know unless something magical is happening and you have you can ride the wave a lot longer but i didn't feel like after unit i felt like because of the the rift between martin and us and and um though peter is a great drummer uh we didn't have that kind of creative um drive that we did before and um we didn't have the the um the uh, clashing of personalities, yeah. which made it easier to deal with on a on a touring and and personal level, but less creative, I think.
0: Yeah, well, I guess you also you weren't a new band anymore. That's
1: right. You got to be fresh, fresh flesh, to make it to make it happen.
0: So you've so I won't go through every album, even though I've sort of been doing that a bit. But um, do you feel like now you're a dad, you're a husband? Um, do you feel like you have a different sort of relationship with making music now, like now that you obviously have different priorities in life.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's vestiges of the old me certainly uh, that I carry with me and, and all the memories that come with being in a band for so long. And also there's, there's, there's also, there's also the experience that we have, you know, now while we're, while we're touring and we're fortunate enough to have a, a big nostalgia, um, element and, draws redraws a crowd and we can still play to an inner city crowd and we still play at a reasonable level where we can hype up uh sometimes we we pl- in some ways we play better than we used to yeah uh so there is an element of the past that is always with us and reminds us constantly of that success and that kind of uh power that we had as a band and we still have in in a way yeah absolutely um, so there are vestiges of that but um it's definitely a lot more realistic and you have the experience of, of success and failure and, and relative failure, I should say. And, and um, you understand how it works still now and how, how you can approach it now is, is different because of those reasons, I think.
0: Yeah. I think that's a good attitude to have. And also I guess you still, you you know, you're not going to go on like seven week tours in Europe anyway, because you're all dads and, you know, got other responsibilities yeah exactly
1: i mean you understand the limits and you're you're a little bit buried under the rubble of adult responsibility so you kind of have to accept that finding time to be you know creative in a chaotic way is 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 harder but um I find that the uncomfortability that I sought by going overseas and recording in shitty studios everywhere is now kind of uh, transformed into the uncomfortability of having to work in the cracks between my son's, you know, sleeping patterns and, yeah. and you know, day-to-day living, you know, doing other things to, to survive and stuff like that. So
0: Yeah, adulting. It's, a,
1: it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> so you work in the cracks and that's kind of where yeah. I'm most creative when I've only got half an hour only an hour to come up with something that works.
0: And are you still writing stuff for Regurgitator at the moment?
1: Yeah, bits uh, bits and bobs. Like I there's a couple of songs that I really want to do for a new album that's that will, you know, appear in the next year or so. And of course there's a record that I'm working on with you that I, I really want to have fun with and yeah. and tour around eventually. Which will be very different again from yeah. anything either of us have, have done before. So I think, you know, as long as you're pushing yourself <laughs>
0: If anyone <laughs> listens to this, we're doing a hip hop record together, which is pretty funny because I'm the widest person alive, but I think it'll be pretty funny,
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's got potential to do to kind of fill a niche that's not there not not filled currently, and it's certainly it's certainly a weird concoction of things, and weird that we're both doing it, so I think it's it's got a lot of fun potential, and that's important, and it's important not to not to have high expectations about it and kind of just enjoy doing it.
0: Yeah, well, I I just do it to make you laugh because that's one of my favorite pastimes.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> as long as there's a level of awkwardness to it, I'm happy to get involved. I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I I'm always going to be awkward for you when it comes to hip hop. <laughs> 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 I
1: know, I know. Well, me too, you know.
0: <laughs> I am. Um, I really like you coaching me rap to rap though. I think um, that's been really good for me to have you go. I, I think it would help if you just uh, pretended to be biggie. <laughs> uh,
1: it's extremely disappointing for me, though, when, the, when your verses sound better than mine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that never happens.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I beg to differ. I <laughs> beg to disagree. I mean, I, I th- I th- yeah, but I, mean, I, th- I think that it comes together really well and obviously you'll get better at doing it on yeah. your own as well. I mean, I'm not exactly biggie smalls or anything and you're not exactly um, – What's her face? Nico. <laughs> you no, know, Kim. All oh, right, little Kim.
0: I thought you were it's talking really about a, dynamic, really, a white woman, so I just said Nico. no. Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess
1: that would be a better analogy, but um, yeah, it's fun. It's fun to be able to impart like some skills that I've picked up on along the way. But like I said, I, I'm not really. I don't have that background. I'm, not, I'm I'm certainly not American. I don't come from a, a ghetto. A, not imbued with black culture or anything like that but the music is infectious and it's great fun and if you can ape it if you can ape it and you you're you know satisfied that you are aping it and people are you know happy to to accept the fact that you're aping something then it's it's totally just about having fun then
0: yeah and i think if you if you're having fun people can hear it and then you know they appreciate it which is probably like comes back to you know the albums that you made where you weren't having very much fun, it, it might come through a little bit in regurgitator too,
1: yeah, absolutely i mean there's there's this thing that people talk about all the time. critics talk about uh, like a uh, a level of authenticity in music, yeah and um I think it's always been tricky for regurgitator because we have taken and stolen things um all the time, but that authenticity comes with the The naivety that you bring to a a project, and the joy that you bring to it, and the the not giving a fuck that you bring to it, and that that's that's really the aura of of cool and authenticity that people spot, I think, and and relate to, and and are drawn to.
0: Yeah, I think I definitely need to give less fucks in life. (laughs) Yes,
1: (laughs) I've tried to tell you more about that. But you know, it's only, like I said before, it's sort of come full circle with me because you do have that success and you have that kind of um, relative failure and you feel like you can't let it go for a long time and then eventually you do let it go and things become more important. I mean, those things become less important to you and other more mundane aspects of life become, they take over. Yeah. And then you finally just let it go and you start doing it for the hell of it again and you stop giving a fuck.
0: Yeah, I think I'm getting, I'm getting closer. Maybe just giving a little yeah. bit less of a fuck these days.
1: We'll all be dead soon anyway, so doesn't <laughs>
0: That's right. That's probably a good place to end, actually. We'll all be dead soon, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> exactly. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks. Thank you so much for talking with me, Kwan.
1: Oh, you know, it's always a, it's always a pleasure. We, I mean, we've, we've spent so much time chatting to each other, next to each other in single beds in fucking hotel rooms I on know. tour. <laughs> I mean, this... This kind of length of conversation is nothing compared to it. The Game of Thrones-esque <laughs> conversations we've had in the past. And I, I hope it wasn't too boring.
0: No, it was great. I, um, it took me back to lying in single bed next to um, <laughs> you, yeah. e- eating dark chocolate and talking about our feelings.
1: <laughs> yeah, man. That's touring life and it's going to happen again.
0: <laughs> are, you, are you feeling a, um, a severe lack of um, keyboardery currently?
1: yeah i mean it's a double-edged sword though i mean like you said before the stage can only hold so much ego (laughs) (laughs) i suffered that really badly when i did that that side project with 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 brent as you know with um spod
0: yeah that i fucking love that that's still my favorite thing you've ever done
1: i know i really love that record and i'm i'm really I, i really am sorry that it didn't do better for him particularly um, because I know his heart was was in it and mine was as well. But I just was like, fuck, this is so hard being on stage with this guy. He's such an incredible performer. He is, yeah. And I just feel like I couldn't kind of – I didn't compliment him well in some way. <laughs> I don't know oh, what it no. was. It was just weird. I mean, it was different because Ben is like that as well for me. I mean, I feel like I defer to him when I'm not in a party kind of mood and he, he picks up the reins. But um, for some reason I just found it completely intimidating. I, I think the material was difficult as well and we didn't really find time to rehearse a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah, but still, I, I think I went to all of your shows. I like flew around the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. Because I was like my two favourite people in the world. Um, yeah, it was fun. And, y- and I think you also had Stella from Warpaint playing drums on your record and so I, it was just like a best friend party for me.
1: Yeah, um, it was just it's a random thing, but yeah, it was fun.
0: fucking loved it. It was so good. You should definitely do something like that again one day with, with Spod.
1: Well, I'm going to do it with you. Okay. You, know, you, know. <laughs> you don't We're intimidate gonna- me quite as much on stage. <laughs> we can both be kind of like, uh, and it kind of works. He I can, think it'll work.
0: He can come do a guest spot and then we can both just hug in the, in the corner of the stage. <laughs> <laughs>
1: totally. I'm totally up for that. The call is out.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thanks so much for talking to me.
1: Always a pleasure.
0: Extra, Extra questions. Question. So... What is? Tell me what the weirdest show you've ever played is, or the worst show you've ever played, or just a significant moment that was very odd uh, in relation to your creative endeavor.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I've mentioned this before. It's pretty hard to nail one down because this band, I mean, we're we're pretty eclectic to begin with, but we have an inc- incredibly eclectic person at the helm, i.e. Uh, Paul Curtis. And he has this habit of like putting us in really awkward positions and really interesting, interesting ones as well. Because you know he doesn't like to go down the the route of like a normal manager. He doesn't, you know. You
0: <laughs> make he keeps things super interesting. He I does.
1: Have to say. totally. You you never know where where you're going to end up. Where you're going to wake up. What's <laughs> yeah. going to happen? Generally and speaking, and it's the best stories. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So I mean, I've got we got we have got quite a few in in the uh, the bank, so to speak. Um, but I don't know. I I, I mentioned that Lao's one that you were at the Lao one that yeah. you, you played at. That was that was
0: really weird.
1: That's pretty out there. That one. <laughs> <laughs> that I think we should
0: there. tell you. You should tell that one. Or what are, what are the other options?
1: Oh, well, there's the there's the one that was in Iwakuni Bay where we played with that metal band called Dick. In the middle <laughs> of we we're stuck on a ferry for like four hours with all these American GIs and their their poor <laughs> poor Japanese girlfriends and they were getting completely wasted and we had to play after this this metal band who had made their own banner out of light bulbs of their of the name of the band which was Dick and it just like <laughs> flashed behind them and then that sounds amazing i don't know then there was like this, the Australian sports awards we played with when when Shane was the that was the first show that Shane our keyboard player for the unit tour played with us yeah. And that was, like, in front of Dawn Fraser and all these, like, incredible kind of sports legends in a studio. And we'd prepared maybe, – maybe I'll just tell you that one. It was stupid and just so typical of our, our, our band's kind of um, awkwardness and, and just what would happen to us all the time, even at, the, like, one of the peaks of our career.
0: So what happened?
1: Well, So we were asked to play the Australian Sports Awards and we're like, oh, that sounds – None of us like sport. <laughs> All right, we'll just do it anyway. Was that <laughs> so, broadcast? Yeah, it was broadcast live. Well, so there wasn't any rehearsal or anything. Yeah, it was just uh, actually I don't know. Maybe there was a rehearsal. I can't even remember the rehearsal or not. But I think everything, I think went everything went okay for the rehearsal. But it was ha- it had a backing track. It was like a I think it was happiness, a song that was off art. So it must have been just after the, that, that record was released. Anyway, we, we got up on stage and we were we, it was live broadcasts, ABC. Yeah. And Dawn Fraser is sitting right in front of me. <laughs> um, and I think like Kieran Perkins was there and all these other people. <laughs> yeah, like, super fit dudes. Yeah, super fit. Their eyes were like glassy kind <laughs> of shark stares at us. They did, had no idea who we were, I think, yeah. or what was going to happen. And um, we were playing. I'm pretty sure it was that that happiness song, and it's got like a major backing track to it. And in those days, we were using like DAT players Whoa. and samplers and stuff. But I think we decided that we could do it with just samplers, um, with Shane playing, and that's part of the reason why we we had him on stage. Um, anyway, we, we 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 walked out, and then, and it seemed to be going fine. And then Shane walked out, and he he tripped over the power supply for his. <laughs> his sampling kit which was like a full on rack of of um i think S1000s and like old Akai samplers oh <laughs> that you couldn't no. reboot without oh like no. using floppy drives and shit like that and anyway we had to play the song straight away so we cut. <laughs> kind of, we looked at each other and were like ah oh, where's where's the where's, this, where's this, the samples and the and all of the um the backing that goes with it yeah the, <laughs> where's the like whole the, song the soaring <laughs> strings and stuff all through it and so we just we just was like uh, we just we got to play now. So <laughs> so so I think Peter I don't know whether it was Peter or Martin, I can't remember now, but he just counted it in and and then we just started playing without this stuff, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and in and, and behind us there was a sort of silk screen that yeah. you could was sort of partially translucent. And in that silk screen you could see Shane's shadow like furiously, frantically trying to pull shit out and get it working again. The whole song. <laughs> and I'm sure perfect. you could see it on, on stage, like from, from wherever you were in the audience. It was perfectly <laughs> obvious what was going on. And we kind of played this really empty version of the song live on, on, on ABC at Amazing. the Sports Awards
0: amazing and did you just feel like a high school band or something trying to like rehearse a song <laughs> well
1: no this is the thing it, we we take these kind of things in our stride because it was just like a bit of a norm especially when shane right. was around because you never knew and the technology we were using at the time there seemed to be some weird kind of electrical imbalance that was going on between the machines and him and, <laughs> how, and, and how nervous he was he just gave off this incredible like nervousness that yeah. would only dissipate when his hands just touched the keyboard everything like he'd shake tremendously up until about two or three millimeters <laughs> before he touched touched the actual keyboard and then everything would just kind of calm down and actually play it quite well but that I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the very first show he ever played with us
0: uh, that's such and then we story. went
1: on we went on to like play big day arts with him and you know, we played the Arias and he knocked this $30,000 automated light <laughs> into the audience, into like a, a child's hands.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: God knows how it, that person didn't get burned. <laughs>
0: Keeps things interesting, though, having people yeah. like that around. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, totally.
0: <laughs> oh, I think that's but, a I mean, really great story.
1: That's, that's one of the stories. But it, honestly, <laughs> it sounds so pedestrian compared to some of the other, <laughs> like some of the <laughs> other situations we've been in.
0: Yeah, I know. I've been in lots of them with you. <laughs> I know. I know.
1: Crazy, crazy stuff.
0: Well, um, you'll have to write a book one day and write them all down. Your fragmented yeah, yeah. memories of them. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, th- I think we're actually, we're, we're workshopping something like that at the moment, actually.
0: Oh, great. Well, so, yeah, um, yeah keep, keep the others in your pocket for then. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, help you write it. I'll help you write them down.
1: Yeah, that'd be good, actually. You can be our ghostwriter. Yeah, <laughs> a friendly ghost.
0: So I'm gonna get someone to draw this uh, and put it on my Instagram.
1: Oh, that'd be cool.
0: All right, thanks so much, Quan.
1: That's okay.